Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Okay, if you have a Bible, why don't you open it back to John chapter 6, and I'll invite this morning's reader to come up and read to you from John chapter 6. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, in number about five thousand. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to his disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up, and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Well, today you're going to brush off the old flanograph uh, once again for a second consecutive week as we look again at this really familiar story in our series looking at the seven signs that are recorded in John's Gospel. And it's a good thing, I think, that this story is familiar to so many of us. It's really an incredible moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. It's the only miracle, you may remember I said last week, that's recorded in all four Gospels with the exception of Jesus' own resurrection. This is a massive moment. However, it's sometimes unfortunate and even potentially a bit detrimental for us to be so familiar with the story from the life of Jesus. We can begin to look kind of like the community in Nazareth who were so familiar with Jesus because they grew up around him that they failed to see his significance. And in the same way, I think even with a story like this, whether it's in your private time of study or maybe you've heard in a corporate time of study someone teach on this many different times, we can check out thinking, I've already got this down, I already know what this says, or we can misunderstand completely the real message of the text or what God by his spirit may want to speak to us in this moment through a text. You see, this text is no, is no exception to, I guess we could say, that quote-unquote danger, that it's so very familiar to us. In fact, the story is very simple, and that it presents very simply and clearly that multiplying the bread here, Jesus doing this, was not merely so that people would be impressed by his power, but that the people would also see that Jesus cared about their well-being. It's a both and. It's a simple but precious truth and reminder to us that, that Jesus cared about whether or not people went to bed hungry that night. And in our story, he actually expected his followers to care as well. 
In fact, he instructed them, you do the work, you feed them. You see, Jesus cared for their souls. He taught them, but he also cared for their bodies. He fed them. And I think that we should have investment in both of those things as we look at a broken world around us. But there's a piece of this story that we're really yet to consider. And and because of time management that I do a poor job with, I decided last week to hang on to it for this week. And so that's why we're revisiting this story, because you could say that there is an additional direction that the sign of this story is pointing to. Remember that John doesn't use the word a miracle for the miracles of Jesus in John's gospel. He calls them signs because a sign is meant to point to something outside of and beyond itself. He's saying that the miracles of Jesus are trying to point our attention to something greater than just the miracle itself. By the end of the book, John says the reason he records these signs is so that you would believe in Jesus and that in believing you would find life. So the goal of these signs is to point you to truths outside of themselves and to have you believe and embrace them and in believing them that you would find life. Now, the thing we didn't touch on was what was just read in those last two verses. In verse 14, when it mentions that the people believed that Jesus was that prophet, and then in verse 15, we didn't even mention the fact that the people all of a sudden in that moment rally around Jesus determined to make him their king. And so those are the two things that I'd like to look at with you. But in order to do that, I think we need to hit rewind a little bit and go back to the Old Testament. Remember, as I referenced last week, this is a story that actually is foreshadowed hundreds of years beforehand in the Old Testament narratives. The story parallels a very similar miracle in the Old Testament where the children of Israel have exited Egypt. And you remember, as they're out in the wilderness, in Exodus 16, Moses prays and God rains down manna from the sky. There's bread from heaven that God provides a meal where there, were other, where there otherwise was no meal. It was a miracle and a foreshadow of this moment. But in Moses' life, there's actually a second time where God seems to provide bread through really miraculous means. You might remember in Exodus 19, God's presence and glory descends and manifests atop Mount Sinai, and God warns the people to stay back and not even to so much as touch the mountain, lest they die. But just a few chapters later in Exodus 24, an amazing moment in stories logged for us where God instructs Moses and the elders of Israel to prepare sacrifices and then sprinkle themselves, cleanse themselves with the blood of those sacrifices. And then God gives an invitation. He invites Moses and the elders of Israel after they've entered into this covenantal relationship with God, after they've sprinkled themselves with blood, God then invites them to climb the mountain to be with God. The story is recorded in Exodus 24, beginning in verse 9. It's crazy. I just want to read you a couple of the verses. It says, Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. So they saw God and ate and drank. It's kind of a stunning story that's just a few verses in your Bible that's easily to overlook. But when you think about what this moment in time taught God's people, you see it's telling them that God was, yes, undoubtedly their king and their God, whom they needed to fear and revere. But on that day, they also learned that God desired to be their friend after he would provide a covering, a washing, a sprinkling of blood. He then invited them to dine with him. He didn't merely want them to fear him, 
He wanted them to see that he longed for friendship with them. On the heels of that moment, God then gives Moses instruction for God's dwelling place that they're to build. It's first the tabernacle, and then it becomes the permanent residence, what we call the temple that will be constructed by Solomon. Included in, in those instructions was a very ornate piece of furniture that was overlaid in pure gold called the table of showbread. And atop that table would be 12 freshly made loaves of bread with frankincense sprinkled on top of it. Those loaves could be consumed by the priests or even the weary, we learned in the Old Testament, when David is fleeing from King Saul and weary and hungry and partakes of the bread. But the bread that was to be laid there was for the weary, for the heavy laden. You see, the loaves seemed to look backward to the moment where God demonstrated his desire to dine with his friends as he had done atop the mountain. And the moment also seems that that place, that table of showbread, undoubtedly pointed ahead to Jesus who had come, as he says in John 6, as the bread of life, offering all men sustenance and life that they would find in no other place. You see, it was pointing the head to God's provision of the means for men to come and dine with him, Christ, our substitute and sacrificial lamb, who would make a way for us to belong. You see, the significance of the moment in the imagery of Moses, they're not lost then on your story here in John chapter 6. In verse 14, those men, when they'd seen the signs that Jesus did, what did they say? They said, truly, this is the prophet who has come into the world. You see, the people are referencing Moses' farewell speech that's logged in the book of Deuteronomy, where Moses will hand off the leadership of the people to Joshua, who will lead them forward into the promised land. And as he makes that transition, Moses also records a promise from God to his people. It's this amazing prophetic statement and claim. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 18, where God is speaking through Moses in verse 18. He says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you. Please hear that. God's promise to his people is in the future, I will raise up a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command and it shall be that whatever, or I'm sorry, whoever will not hear my words which he speaks in my names, I will require it of him. God promises a future prophet that will come and do the things that Moses did. And that that coming prophet will come and speak all that God commits to him, all that God would prompt him to speak and to do. And after Jesus' life, in the book of Acts, in chapter 3, the apostle Peter, he will connect that, this title that's given for that future prophet, he will connect it to the rest of the Old Testament prophets and their, their look and promise that a promised Messiah, a Savior, would come. And he would say, that prophet is that one Savior who is Christ. You might remember at the beginning of John's gospel, it's John the Baptist who's approached by some people and they say, are you that prophet? And he says, oh, I'm not the one, but the one who's coming after me, whose sandal straps I'm not even worthy to unloose. He is that prophet. He is the one. It'd be the next day when John would see Jesus coming that he would point and say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Later in John's gospel, you find that some of Jesus' earliest followers, this is the report that they give to their friends and family, that we have found the one, that prophet, whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote about. It is Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. If you fast forward even a little further in John's gospel to chapter 8, verse 28, you find Jesus describing himself using 
a near verbatim quotation and description as Moses gave in Deuteronomy when Jesus says, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing of myself, but as the Father taught me, I speak those things. Okay, now if I've already lost you, it's okay, take a deep breath and come back because I'll just bring you up to speed. Don't miss this. This amazing moment and miracle in the life of Jesus here in John 6, the feeding of the 5,000 as we know it, was to show us something that everyone there seemed to recognize, which is that this, in fact, is the one that God had promised would be present now with us in this moment, able to deliver as Moses had done before him and to rescue us as God had promised in the Garden of Eden that he would squash sin and Satan's rebellion. Which is why in verse 14, the people confidently say, this truly is the prophet that was promised to us that would come into the world. And it's also why in verse 15, it says that they're wanting to take Jesus by force and make him their king. A New Testament scholar by the name of John Stott, he commented on this, writing this. He says, and I quote, If this was, in fact, the second Moses, he would surely do for them what the first Moses had done for their ancestors and deliver them from oppression. This time, no long journey was necessary to bring them to the promised land. The promised land now, they thought, was a national independence right where they were. Their thinking was, Jesus, all we need now is you to lead a movement, to lift a sword, we'll follow you, we'll drive the Romans out, and we'll make you our king, and we all live happily ever after. You are our new Moses, who's going to deliver us. But Jesus would have none of it. You see, what they failed to remember was that there was no deliverance without their first being the shedding of blood of the innocent substitute in sacrifice. Their search for their new Moses would leave them guilty of overlooking their Passover lamb that needed to come first. So today what I want you to do is I want you to see that the miracle sign of this moment, one of the things it points us to is, yes, all that we talked about last week about the quality of life that Jesus offers us, but a part of it also is that it's pointing to Jesus' identity and even his desire to be king. It's pointing to the kingship of Jesus. However, it makes clear that his kingdom would not align with their desires nor with this world's principles. His kingdom would flip those things upside down, or maybe we'd better state it that he'd flip them right side up. Because ever since mankind rebelled against God, this whole world has is is worked on a broken set of principles where power is achieved through dominance and suppression. Oh, oh, the the rules have been the same, but the rulers have come and gone. It all works the same way. The rules are established, but the players have changed throughout the ages. But Jesus is saying, I will not just be the newest version of that. I'm going to establish a whole different kingdom than that. Okay, so there's three things I want to do with you in the next couple of minutes. The first is, I want to try to convince you that this is what's happening here. The second thing is that I want to remind you that his kingdom was not what humanity wanted or expected. So convince you, remind you, but then I really do want to appeal to you, appeal to you to live every day in light of your citizenship and your role as an ambassador of that kingdom. Because in this moment in Galilee where Jesus fed the multitudes with bread, what Jesus is doing here is he's kickstarting a revolution. Let me try to convince you that this is what's happening, that Jesus is in fact establishing a new kingdom. Because for us as the casual reader of scripture, what we find is that the feeding of the 5,000, it signals the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry. 
that had lasted about two years, it came to an end when he refused to be their earthly king, and they lost interest and deserted him, not to be seen again surrounding Jesus. One commentator, he'd say it this way, though. He'd say, the world did not need another Alexander as much as they needed a savior. But think back to that day on the rocky hillside in rural Galilee, where it says in John 6, look at verse 4, that now the Passover was near. You see, the Passover is something that was celebrated in the spring of every year. It commemorated the blood of an innocent sacrifice that had to be shed so that the judgment of God, as it happened in Egypt, would pass over them. You see, Passover was celebrated in commemoration of God's deliverance from their evil taskmasters in Egypt, that they were freed from Pharaoh's dominance. But it wasn't just celebrated in commemoration, it was always celebrated in anticipation, looking ahead to a future deliverer, to a promised deliverer. So with all of that on these people's minds, John is telling us this is the time of year to commemorate what God has done and to anticipate him doing it again, remembering the past, being hopeful about their future. Their standing before them was the one that they had hoped would deliver them, who all of a sudden makes a meal appear where there was no way to feed them, who like Moses before him would see a miracle and move of God in such a powerful way that no one could deny it, so much so that they stand up and say, he's clearly that one who would come and do what Moses has done. However, Jesus would not deliver them from Rome as they had hoped. Jesus would come to deliver them from a far greater foe, from Satan's reign of sin and sickness and suffering and death. Jesus, the greater deliverer and king, would have to first have his innocent blood shed in order to bring about their deliverance so that the judgment of God might pass over their lives and that they too might experience true freedom. Okay, now buckle up for your weekly nerd rant. Uh, because some scholars, they point out that when Jesus left the villages and headed towards this deserted area on the western coast of the Sea of Galilee, this was a remote rural community that was the hill district of Galilee that was sparsely populated. It was basically like if you've driven way off the main roads out into the country and you're like, who lives here? And then someone says, probably the convicts. That's where Jesus is right now. He's well off the beaten path in these uninhabited areas. He's in an area that's known as a hotbed of the resistance movement that's wanting to fight against the Romans. The zealots were based here, a group of religious fanatics who were determined that even by use of force, they would drive away their suppressors, even if it meant lifting a sword and dying for their cause. This is where Jesus is at in that region. Mark's gospel also tells us that when Jesus shows up, he saw them as sheep without a shepherd, which scholar T.W. Manson is quick to point out did not mean he saw them as a congregation without a pastor, but he saw them as an army without a captain, as you find happening in the Old Testament or as exemplified specifically in 1 Kings 22, verse 17. You see, all four of the gospels even point out that there were 5,000 men who were in attendance. Now, why that detail? Well, maybe it's just excluding women and children and that we're supposed to assume that there's upwards of 15 or 20 or more thousand people. Or maybe it's because it really was pretty much exclusively men that had gathered there who were the fighting men who were hiding out in that remote area trying to band together and Jesus arrived in this moment. It's interesting that historically 5,000 was the typical number of a Roman legion. Josephus documented that there were 5,000 men who tried to overthrow Rome in AD 67. 
In other words, a crowd the size of a Roman legion had gathered there predominantly of men who were ready to appoint and anoint their new leader and king, Jesus of Nazareth, who they're determined must be like Moses, who's going to drive off our oppressors and who's going to lead us into true freedom. You see, what the other gospel writers seem to be hinting at, John makes very clear when he says in verse 15 that they wanted to take Jesus by force and make him their king. You see, the story is not just about Jesus hosting a picnic. It's the story of Jesus starting a revolution. It's something that those in attendance on that day seemed to be very clear of when they saw the sign that Jesus did and deemed him to be that prophet that Moses had promised would lead God's future people forward and into freedom which is why they're ready to start the parade and march towards Jerusalem. Yes, it's a story about a revolution beginning, but it's a revolution that no one expected. I mean, if you think this through, not just every ancient revolutionary, but every modern revolutionary leader, they share at least three things in common. The first is that they'd release some form of a manifesto. And here Jesus is on this hillside teaching them about the gospel, the good news of his kingdom. The second thing that you do if you're leading a revolution as a good leader is you'd hand out a weapon and train people to use it. But Jesus is not distributing AK-47s, is he? Or swords or shields, or even a spear, or rocks and a sling. He's distributing bread, loaves, and fish, and he's training his disciples to serve others and to love self-sacrificially. He's training them to live by faith. You see, the other thing a revolutionary would do is they'd always kickstart their movement with a violent act of bloodshed. And Jesus' revolution would begin in just that same manner, wouldn't it? With a violent act and bloodshed. But it would not be Jesus attacking his own enemies. It would instead be him giving his life for his enemies. Author Timothy Keller in his book, Jesus the King, he touches on the irony of this moment when he wrote, and I quote, and how does he respond to their calling for a revolutionary leader? Jesus gives out his word and bread and gives his disciples bread distribution training. Do you see how odd this is? Like it's anticlimactic, it's strange, it's a unique revolution. It's not accidental, this is deliberate. And it's demonstrating that Jesus wouldn't march his movement in to a military drumbeat. It's why he would hand out bread. Like why bread? If we think of bread in a modern setting such as ours in the West, we think of bread and, and all we think of is carbohydrates, right? All we think of is like stay away from it or limit it. Like it is actually a weapon for us, right? Give your enemy lots of bread and then they'll self-loathe afterwards, right? That's how we think. But bread wasn't a weapon. Bread was life in the ancient world. To have bread meant to have life. Remember, it's Jesus who taught them to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Bread summarized everything they needed to survive. He was saying, you don't have to go through the whole list of everything you think you need to survive. No, bread is life. Jesus is saying that every revolutionary leader other than him, they'd come and distribute death. They'd leave a trail of death behind them as they'd hand out their weapons and give their training and march on. But Jesus is here saying, I'm come to distribute life and to leave a trail of life in my wake. As we discussed last week, Jesus taught right after this miracle to this very same crowd that he came to give what would satisfy a deeper need than hunger. Rather than you being hungry again, he said, I can satisfy you forever. As he says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. He's telling them, I am what you truly long for. 
I am what, will, what you're hungry for. You see, they're pursuing a revolutionary that would give them new life through violence and an overthrowing of the Romans. And Jesus is here, though, teaching that there's a deeper hunger that must be addressed and met. That these people desired was something that was only on the surface and that their deepest desires, far beneath that, was something that he was offering to satiate and satisfy. And it's true for all of us. We all have things that we think if we only had, well, then we'd be happy. Or circumstances that we're, we're convinced that if they'd change, if they'd only go away, if they'd only be removed, well, well, then we'd be happy. All of us have things about ourselves that we believe, if only this were different and I didn't have to deal with this, well, then I'd be happy. And they did too. That's why they were determined. This man needs to march as king to overthrow the Romans. The only problem is sometimes what we find in life is when we get those things, when things work out the way that we want it to, we end up maybe in the relationship we had hoped for or receiving the big promotion or finally being free of that frustration, we, we experience it finally only to realize that it was never what we really needed because we realize that it's still unable to satisfy us. There's still a, still a new thing beneath that that we're saying, if I only had this though, then maybe I'd be satisfied. Or like we agreed upon last week, like manna, these other things we are trying to use to satisfy and satiate our deeper hunger, these things, people and power, we try to use as our reason for living or as our purpose for life, they will never last and always spoil, just like the manna did. They cannot be the thing that moves your life from existence to truly living because they cannot bear the weight of your happiness or of your identity. Well, let me try to convince you that this is what's happening here, that Jesus is trying to make a statement that he's establishing a community, or I'm sorry, a whole new movement and kingdom. But I want to remind you the second thing. I want to remind you that his kingdom was not what humanity wanted or expected. You see, there's a, there's a hard challenge as you read the Old Testament and all the promises about the Messiah, the Savior who had come. The challenge is that you're really left with two different images that almost seem irreconcilable. You have images of a coming king who comes with power and authority and judgment in his hand. And yet you have these other images of a suffering servant who's the friend and servant of men. You see, there's this dual nature and purpose of the promised Messiah and prophecy. And what they anticipated was just the king coming in judgment. And the king will undoubtedly come in the future in judgment. He will. We know that. We can look at the end of the book. But first, the king came and girded himself in a towel to serve the sons of men, as you find later in John's gospel. Jesus would first come. The Messiah would first come. That prophet, the one sent from the presence of God with the very power and authority of God, would first come as a suffering servant. At the end of the book, you see these two images actually finally align and come together. It's when John in the book of Revelation is in the heavenly realm and, and there's this, this, this scroll that they're saying, who can open it? Who has authority to take it and open it? It seemingly is the title deed to creation. Who has the authority to take it and to open it? And he begins to weep, realizing that there's none. But then someone says, he hears a voice that says, they're the one, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And when John looked what he saw, recorded for you in Revelation chapter 5, what he looked and saw was a lamb who had been slain. 
The lion with all of his authority and power stood before him as a lamb who had been slain. These two images of a suffering servant and a conquering king, they finally come together in that moment where your Bible makes clear that this is one and the same, but it's two arrivals. Jesus would first come as a suffering servant and later come as a judge and a king. You see, one day in our future, he'll return to the Mount of Olives. The Bible tells you riding on a war horse with the mountain splitting in two as if creation itself is welcoming its creator and king as if the rocks are crying out as they split apart in two. Jesus will one day return to restore his creation and to bring final judgment to the nations. But if he would have done that in his first coming, we all would be hopelessly and helplessly judged. But instead, Jesus would come first to take our judgment upon himself, to extend mercy to us. And there on the eastern shores of the great lake in Galilee, they hoped for a king who would be as fierce as a lion attacking the Romans but what stood before them on that rocky hillside on that day, distributing bread, giving life, was the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, the Passover Lamb, who would strip our greater enemy of his crown of sin, sickness, suffering, and death. And because Jesus would here refuse to go along with their plans or to live up to their expectations, they packed up and left. In the remainder of the Gospels, you don't find Jesus again after this moment with a big crowd following him in Galilee because they were done with him. My friends, hear me, please. Don't give up and bail out on Jesus just because you have unmet expectations. Because when you think about it, even in this story, he didn't just fall short of their expectations, which he did. He superseded their expectations by suffering and dying to secure them eternal peace, not just from Rome, but from their greater enemy who could destroy their soul. Rather than just dethroning and disposing of the greatest form of oppression or their greatest form of opposition that they felt in the moment, Jesus would provide deliverance from something much deeper than that. But for them, they needed to allow Jesus to rewrite their expectations, and they wouldn't allow him to, and so they left. Will you let him do that? Will you let him rewrite your expectations? Because I'm convinced he doesn't fall short of them so much as he supersedes them. You might be saying, I just need you to dethrone and dispose of the greatest form of oppression or my greatest form of opposition. That's what I'm asking. And when he doesn't, will you allow him? to rewrite your expectations? Will you stick with him or you leave him as they did even when he doesn't heal? Or even if you lose the house or the car or you have to just finally bury the dream, even if fill in the blank, will you allow him to rewrite your expectations? You know, if you have a God who's so massive and powerful that you're disappointed in him for not intervening, to go along with your plan and your desire for the way that you want him to do things, then do you not also have to admit that you have a God who is potentially far more wise than you can comprehend and has a reason for doing things his way and not your way that may be beyond your understanding? You see, if you have a God so powerful that you're mad at him for not intervening to do things your way, you have to also bend a knee to the one who is wise enough maybe to have reasons you can't comprehend today for doing it. 
where you allow him to rewrite your expectations. Oh, I want to convince you, yes, but I want to remind you that his kingdom was not what humanity wanted or expected. And really, what he's offering in his kingdom, we could take full circle and say, you see, salvation is not merely being saved from the wrath of God. It is entering into life and relationship with God in his kingdom. It's dining in this secret place with the king of the universe, like Moses and his companions were invited to do. Let me wrap up by doing the third thing, and that's, I want to appeal to you then. If this is true, and this this is what the story is telling us, then I want to appeal to you to live every day in light of your citizenship and in light of your role as an ambassador of that kingdom. Because my friends, we live in a tension that, that theologians refer to as the now and not yet. That the kingdom of God, yes, is now here as Jesus would, would preach and proclaim often. It is still today, now here, as Jesus the King is alive and working in my life. And yet we're waiting for the full arrival of the kingdom. When heaven and earth will collide, we live in the tension of the now and not yet. Oh, but I hope you're aware that the storyline of the Bible is not merely just going to heaven when we die. It's about heaven coming here, about heaven and earth uniting once again. You see, as a follower of Jesus, I'm told in Scripture that I'm a citizen of an invisible kingdom. I am living in a colony of heaven here on the earth. Can I say that again to you? You are a citizen of an invisible kingdom. You are part of a colony of heaven living here on the earth. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 says it this way, but we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. You see, our citizenship is secure. We don't attempt to earn that. Jesus purchased my place in heaven, my citizenship. By my faith in Jesus, I was granted citizenship, forgiveness and acceptance that I can belong. And you and I as believers in Jesus are now members of this invisible kingdom. We are citizens of heaven's kingdom. And now we hold with us the responsibility as being ambassadors of that kingdom. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 says, We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We beg you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. You see, I am both a citizen of that kingdom and simultaneously now made an ambassador of that kingdom. Think about it. The message of the kingdom does not merely provide then hope for the future. It then provides purpose for the present. Because I am an ambassador today. I'm not just waiting to experience things tomorrow or in the future. I love how C.S. Lewis put it in Mere Christianity. He said, Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. You see, God's goal is not merely for you to be forgiven. He came to redeem and restore all that was lost, both you and the rest of creation. He came to take back creation and to set up his kingdom. God wants to restore this world for it once again to reflect his greatness and glory for mankind and creation to do that, which means that the message of Jesus' kingdom is not that everything will be made easy today, but that everything one day will be made right again. That's the promise of the kingdom. Not that if you walk with Jesus and you're a member of his kingdom that everything will be made easy today. The promise of the kingdom, because he wants to come to take back, to redeem and restore creation, which we see at the end of the book, he stands and pronounces, behold, I make all things new again. Then the promise of this, of the kingdom, 
It's not that everything will be easy today, but that everything one day will be made right again. And you need to know, Jesus gave a glimpse into his kingdom. You don't have to wonder, well, what will it be like one day to be a member in his kingdom when heaven and earth reunites again? Jesus' teachings would explain it. His teachings are almost exclusively about the kingdom. I don't know if you've noticed that before. We call them kingdom parables because the parables are parables of the kingdom. His message of the gospel, of the good news of the kingdom of God, it's all about the kingdom. And his miracles left, with, left us with a vision, a look into his future kingdom. You've probably heard me mention this before, and I believe it's a loose paraphrase of either C.S. Lewis or Keller. I'm not sure which one, but every one of Jesus' miracles happened not just to prove his power or his deity or even his care. His miracles happened to give you a glimpse into both what he's doing and where he's taking you. He's ushering you into his kingdom where he is king over redeemed and restored people in place which means that his miracles are not merely the suspension, like he pushed pause on the natural order of things. No, they are the restoration of the natural order because God never created nor intended and will only briefly allow pain and sickness and suffering and hunger and death and evil, which means that the miracles of Jesus are not necessarily to be read so much as just a challenge to your mind, so much as they're meant to be read as a promise to your heart that the world that you and I want is coming. Where every tear is wiped away, where every wrong is made right, where every person is fed and healed and whole, where pandemics and cancers and sorrows are less than a distant memory. You see, if heaven's king is alive in me, I'm not only a member of that kingdom, but I'm also the means of the world's experience of that kingdom. The world's meant to get a taste of the kingdom of God through their interaction with heaven's king who resides in me. We become their glimpse of what heaven's kingdom will be like in the way that we treat them and love them and serve them. You see, if you're truly a follower of Jesus and a member of his upside-down kingdom, then we'll cherish and value self-sacrifice over self-absorption. We'll cherish, uh, cherish and value meekness and humility over success and superi superiority. We'll cherish and value mercy and peace, vulnerability and love over reputation and admiration because we are dwelling in the right-side-up kingdom, because we cherish Jesus over ourselves. You see, we do not reside in the upside-down kingdom of Jesus simply by choosing to value a system. We reside in his kingdom that turns everything the right way when we choose to value and cherish a person, Jesus himself. You know, when you fast forward to the very end of this gospel, or really all the gospel accounts, it ends with our focus in the story shifting towards the soldiers who will persecute Jesus, who will beat him and mock him. At the end of the story, it seems as if Jesus' fate, it rests in their hands. The way they choose to treat him, though, is incredibly ironic, isn't it? Because Pilate will refer to Jesus as the king of the Jews. It will be marked on the sign above his head that that was his crime. He is their king, it would say. The Roman soldiers would jump in on the joke and play the game of the kings. If you go with us to Israel in the spring, you'll see it etched into the ground in the, the base of the praetorium. There it is, the game that they'd play is they'd make a mockery 
out of the one who'd be condemned to die, treating him as a king. So there they gathered, mocking Jesus. In their minds, a kingdom couldn't be established without the use of force. And they're going to demonstrate in this moment just how much greater the force of Rome is than Jesus could ever muster up. Just how much stronger Rome was than Jesus will be soon seen to be by all who gather. So they place that purple robe upon his back, the color of royalty. They position a crown of thorns onto his head and beat it into a place the Gospels tell us with a club. They bow to him, mocking him and then spitting upon him. Jesus becomes in that moment the butt of their joke. The crowd there still present and watching, waiting for the Roman soldiers to finish their circus sideshow, waiting for them to set Jesus on a death march headed towards the cross. It'd be the end of his failing kingdom, they'd think. But their joke about Jesus being a king reigns with eternal, it rings with eternal irony and sovereignty. Because the cross of Jesus would be the enthronement of a new king, of the rightful king over all of creation. While they think the joke is on Jesus, for us, the readers, with hindsight, we can see, really, that in a sense, the joke in that moment is on them. Jesus really is the king of kings and lord of lords. He really does possess ultimate authority. He really is greater than Caesar or the force of the Roman Empire or greater than any problem or opposition that you face today. And while they were busy trying to prove their power over Jesus, they're really playing into the hands of an eternal God who had set these things in motion. Jesus would stand there trembling before them, crown of thorns in his head, purple robe on his shoulder, his beard having been ripped out, his face swollen and disfigured from the beatings he had endured. His chest and back and legs are ripped open, flesh showing, blood still dripping. They looked at him with no pity. He's viewed by them, no doubt, as being weak and overpowered. He is a failed revolutionary, they'd say. But in this moment, though Jesus looks weak and like a failure, and though still today he's still viewed by many as a failed revolutionary because of the cross, Jesus' revolution was kick-started by the cross. The irony of the moment was that while they mocked him, he was satisfying the justice and wrath of God. And he was winning back his kingdom and demonstrating his love even for those who in that moment treated him the worst. This is the love of the internal, just creator of the universe. A God who rose from the dead three days later to prove himself to be an unconquerable victor, the king of the universe. Jesus, today we remember that you are king over all. Jesus, we remember that you do care for the needs of both the multitude and the individual, even the practical needs that you invite us to come to you for them, asking for our daily bread. But Jesus, today we remember on a massive scale that you are King of kings and Lord of lords, and that you have made us, as your followers, to belong as citizens in that kingdom. And you've also given us the title and position of ambassadors. God, thank you today that we can carry in all that overwhelms us, every piece of opposition that we're up against. 
we carried in to place it at the feet of the King of kings and Lord of lords, who did not establish his kingdom movement through a violent act of bloodshed, defeating his enemies. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.